Hi, I'm Lakeisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar! Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it, a hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that's often suppressed by fear. That power is your Roar, and it's waiting to be unleashed. A few years ago, I took a class at work called Executive Inspirational Leadership, and as luck would have it, Adam Bryant, my guest on today's podcast, was the instructor. We were thrilled to have him as our instructor because he was one of the most respected and noted experts on executive leadership. The class was centered around inspiration and how you can optimize your leadership voice to drive inspiration through your organization to accelerate growth in the company. It was one of the best classes I've ever taken in my career. In the class, Adam shared key insights from top CEOs on keys to effective and inspirational leadership. I was so inspired and energized by what I learned in the class, I was super excited to go back and share everything I learned, not only with my direct team, but the executive team I was a part of. As luck would have it, I had a presentation a few weeks after the class at a group offsite that was to focus on how to improve operational excellence in the organization, as well as how to ensure that the team was working as an interdependent leadership team versus a team of leaders. I immediately reached out to Adam to share about my upcoming presentation, and I asked if he'd be willing to share some insights from top CEOs he had interviewed on this exact topic. He quickly responded with a few quotes. The first was from Satya Nadella of Microsoft. Satya says, the thing I was most focused on early was how am I maximizing the effectiveness of the leadership team? And what am I doing to nurture it? I'm not evaluating them on what they say individually. None of them would be on this team if they didn't have some fantastic attributes. I'm only evaluating us collectively as a team. Are we able to authentically communicate? And are we able to build on each person's capabilities to benefit our organization? And the second from Harold Schultz of Starbucks stated, the ability for the team to function together to support one another, to trust one another, to have cohesion, and to also have creative tension is just mission critical. Needless to say, these quotes set the stage for a great team offsite and created tremendous buy-in from the team. This is why I'm so excited to share Adam with you today. Let me introduce you to Adam. Adam Bryant joined American Company, a leadership development and executive mentoring firm, as a managing director in 2017 after a 30-year career in journalism, including 18 years at the New York Times. In addition to his many roles there as a reporter and editor, he created the weekly corner office column in 2009, interviewing 525 CEOs and other leaders over a decade 
and wrote two books based on themes that emerged from those interviews. Since joining Merrick, he has started a popular interview series on LinkedIn with board directors, CEOs, and CHROs, Chief Human Resource Officers, and writes a monthly column on leadership for strategy, Business Magazine. So welcome, Adam. It's so good to have you here with us today. Great to reconnect with you, Lakeisha. Wonderful. Well, today I want to spend some time with you talking about how we can increase our leadership capacity and capability to be more impactful, to be more inspirational leaders based on what you've learned from interviewing hundreds of leaders and just your overall management and leadership experience. So what do you think about that? Is that okay? My favorite topics. Looking forward to it. Wonderful. Well, to jump right in, maybe tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and how that shaped you to who you, to be who you are today. Sure. So I'm uh, from Montreal originally, and uh, sort of border hopped every five years as a kid between the states and Canada. And I think that defined me in some ways. You know, I'm I'm pretty good at moving into sort of new groups of people and situations. And I think uh, sort of moving around a fair amount taught me that when I was in, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, I, I wasn't kind of defined by one group that I was part of. I played a lot of sports, but also had other groups, you know, that were kind of my posses. I love it. I love it. And so it sounds like your ability to kind of get in and, and make friends easily and, and meet new people really helped you in your career. It did. I mean, it, to me, it's, you know, I, I heard this great insight from a CEO that, you know, there, there's so many different kinds of intelligence that people talk about. But one CEO talked about this notion of a high get it factor, where, you know, whether it's a concept that somebody is explaining to you, like, how quickly do you get something? And I think that's not just, you know, intellectual in terms of new ideas and getting them. I think it's being able to move into new any new situation and kind of read the room and figure out, you know, the human dynamics of it as well as the ideas part of it. Love it. Talks to, that sings to me a little bit around being able to adapt very quickly and connect very quickly. So thank you for sharing that. As you talked about, you developed that skill growing up, right? And it, you were able to find your voice at a very early age. How did that empower you to pursue the New York Times, right? I mean, oh my gosh, that's the holy grail. It was. I mean, it probably started with the fact that my father was a journalist and, uh, you know, I probably went through a little bit of faux rebellion in my late teens saying I will never be a journalist, but then joined the college newspaper uh, when I was living in Toronto and and it just caught fire. I mean, I'm really curious about the world and being a journalist, just you can basically ask questions and talk to people and, and have really engaging conversations about ideas and things. And it's it's just like this permanent education. So once I started doing that, I said, this is what I want to do. And and I, uh, I you know, I had, had the dream early on. Of, I didn't think I'd, you know, in all honesty, it was a very distant dream of someday working for the New York Times. But, you know, that's kind of where I set my compass. And I, I got there, I think it was around the time I turned around 30 years old and had... Uh, great 18 years there in different capacities as a reporter, as an editor and manager, and as a columnist, and uh, had, a, had a wonderful experience. Wow, I love that, right? I mean, at the New York Times for quite some time, a phenomenal career in journalism. You know, what was the most valuable lesson you learned while working as a columnist and an editor at the New York Times? It may be hard to, to just give us one, but maybe share whatever's on your heart. Yeah, I think the thing that comes to mind, inspired by your question, Lakeisha, is that 
journalism is one of those professions that engages your whole brain, both the creative and the analytical sides, because so much, you know, the analytical part is, you know, just to sort of stretch the metaphor, right? If, if you take everything that all the news that's happening in the world and the trends that you see unfolding, understanding all those data points and how they relate to each other is a very analytical act. Like mm-hmm. you have to absorb them, kind of see them in your head, how they relate to each other. But then the creative part becomes, well, how do you connect dots in new ways? And a lot of that comes from kind of constantly asking like, what if questions? And how about this? And what if that plays out? What does it mean this? And and to me, the you know, the really the magical part of journalism for me is is when you're you know, you're stepping out onto that kind of virgin snow and you have an idea or an insight or a, a great question that nobody had ever asked before. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they do talk about in journalism that part of it is the art of the good, dumb question. And I think that is true for, you know, frankly, all walks of life, right? That's where a lot of really innovative ideas come from. But very often, it's just that really simple question that nobody asked. Uh, when I've in, uh, I think it was around 2009, you know, I was, I was noticing getting into cars, just like that there was a lot, a lot of different screens. You know, it seems obvious now, but back then you were suddenly seeing people, you know, with a screen here, a screen there mm-hmm. in their car. It just started me asking questions about like, you know, well, how distracted, how dangerous is this? Mm-hmm. Which led to a key insight of, well, if this is obviously dangerous and everybody knows it's dangerous, then why do people keep doing, doing it? it? And then that question, I, I teamed up with one of the reporters that I was uh, working with. And, and that, that question ultimately led to you know, a series that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2010. And to me, it was just, you know, to me, that's just a good case study of just you have to be relentlessly questioning everything around you. And that becomes a habit of mind. And you know, whatever the ratio is, it might be, you know, you might ask yourself 100 questions or 200 questions, but just know that one of those is going to be a great question, which could lead to all, all sorts of other things. So to me, that relentless questioning is just such an important habit of mine. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, you know, as you begin to talk about that, I'm thinking about my own career as an engineer and technologist. It's so important to ask those questions. And especially as young people coming into the career field, you're afraid to ask the question, but it's that one, what you might think could be that dumb question could really unlock the key to innovation for a problem that you've been trying to solve forever. So I love that. Relentless questions and curiosity. (laughs) So, you know, during your time at the New York Times, you started a phenomenal series uh, called The Corner Office. I'm calling it a series, but I mean, you really dug into really uncovering the power that sits at the top, right? And really tapping into those leaders and understanding what makes them tick, what keeps them up at night, but more importantly, what do they see as the most important leadership qualities and traits that they deploy as a leader and what they want to develop from their team? So maybe talk a little bit about what led you to start the corner office? And I bet it was around some questions and some curiosities that you had. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah, so it's a pretty simple story. So I was a journalist for 30 years, spent about half of them as a reporter and half of them as an editor. And then the last 10, also as a columnist, corner office was a side project in addition to my my job managing teams of reporters. So the idea for corner office started with the fact that I 
as a business reporter at the Times. So I, I interviewed a lot of CEOs. And what I realized, the more I did that, you know, it, it may seem like an obvious insight now, but I, I realized that, that business reporters always interview CEOs as if they were sports coaches. It's basically <laughs> like, how are you going to win on Sunday? And what about the other team, right? If you look at Q&As with CEOs in the business press, boil them down, there are essentially two questions like, you know, what is your growth strategy and what about the industry dynamics? And that's fine. I mean, there's an audience for those kind of questions, but I just found the more time I spent with CEOs, I just became really interested in them as human beings and found myself just wanting to set aside all those questions and ask them how they do what they do. And all of that led to this simple what if question that launched Corner Office, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their companies? And instead, just ask them about leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their lives and how they think about culture and talent and how they hire and the job interview questions they ask, career advice, just all those timeless questions. So that was the initial idea. I interviewed 525 CEOs, uh, never missed a week every Sunday. Wow. And I also set myself some guidelines when I launched the series because my real goal was to at the end of the day, just kind of humanize and democratize leadership, Mm -hmm. you know, because leadership is often covered as, you know, fortune 100 CEOs, you know, usually they're named John and they're (laughs) six foot four. And and what I really wanted to do is explore like leadership in, you know, all walks of life, all industries, for-profit, not-for-profit, size of company, nationality. And I also committed to interviewing close to half female CEOs, but also never ask them any gender-specific questions. So I was just going to get rid of the adjective in front of the word leaders and just interview them as leaders, not female leaders or African-American leaders or Asian-American leaders. And so that was kind of the initial idea. I love that. I love that. Again, it goes back to the question, right? right. And what if. Yeah. What if. Always goes back to that question. I appreciate that. And really, you saw it as an opportunity to share with the world, right? That the lens on these CEOs and you took action, right? I go back to the O and the A and and roar. And I think about the relationships that you must've cultivated. How did you move past that fear if any existed? And and maybe that ties into my question around maybe a defining moment that really pushed you to find your roar, um, that thing inside of you that really would allow you to just move past any inhibition or, or fear, anxiety around what you wanted to do. Yeah, I, with Corner Office specifically, I mean, there was, I'll be honest with you, there was some, I did face some skepticism initially, you know, with some colleagues who, because interviews, CEOs had never be, been interviewed that way, there was this sense of like, do you really think you're going to get something from them? And I basically said, my gut says yes, trust me. And I will always remember vividly walking out of the very first interview I did. And I said to myself, this is going to work. I love it. And I think, you know, as I did it, the series for a decade, you know, the thing that I really came to understand is that CEOs, the best ones, not all of them, Mm -hmm. right? But the best ones are thinking all the time about things they are never asked about, (laughs) (laughs) right? So people interview them about their strategy and the industry and the new products that are coming out next next quarter and all those other things. And they spend some of their time thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Pick a number, 10%. I don't know. You set a strategy, you know, you plan the work and you work the plan, right? But what they think about almost all the time is how do I make my team more effective? Mm -hmm. How do I get the best people 
in the company? How do I win the war for talent? How do I sharpen the strategy? How do I communicate better? All those things are things that people generally don't ask them about. So what I found was that, you know, for the most part, they seemed really excited to have the conversation. It was almost like taking a cork off a champagne bottle, like just, you know, they were so eager to share these things. So that was that kind of one little moment I had to push through. Beyond that, I mean, you know, in this may sound odd, but in many ways, journalism is a very entrepreneurial mm. profession, not in the sense of creating a business model to make money. It's entrepreneurial in the sense of you always have to be coming up with theories about ideas and, and you know, you think there's going to story there before you even start reporting. Mm-hmm. And over time, you just, you know, every one of those is a leap of faith. I mean, there's covering news, right? Like something happens, you cover it. That's it's a specific kind of journalism. But if you're trying to push out onto that virgin snow of ideas, all of those are leaps of faith, right? Like I think if I invest this time in this theory, asking these questions that that could lead to this really great story, and you're not going to be right all the time, mm-hmm. but you know, over time it just becomes. It's almost like a muscle that you develop being willing to take those leaps of faith and and trust your gut and trust yourself and know you're going to be wrong sometimes, but your instincts get sharper over time. And, you know, if you're lucky, you're you're right more often than you're wrong. Right. Wow. So powerful. I, I love that. Right. Just taking the leap of faith is what I hear you say. I hear you also say, too, it's important to not just focus on the strategy and the business when it comes to leadership. It's really the heart. It's the head, it's the gut, and really understanding how those CEOs operate, right? Getting to the human part of them, right? <laughs> yeah. And I was so, you know, to that point, Lakeisha, I was just so curious, you know, what made them tick? Because, I mean, you've seen it yourself in, in your own career. You know, the top jobs in these companies are just brutal, yes. right? Like whether you're, it's not just CEO, it's like C-suite, C minus one. These are 24-7 jobs. You're always on call. You know, it's a three-shift day. It starts early. Yes. <laughs> you, you, you can't get your work done at work, right. so you have to do it at, at night. Home. And if you're working for a global company, then there's, you know, the conference calls to cover the different time zones. They're brutal jobs, and they, they're tests of stamina. And I was always so curious to understand what made people tick. And so, you know, I learned over time that, I fell into this pattern where I always started the interviews with the same three questions. Mm -hmm. And the reason I did is because I found they led to the most insightful answers. So the three questions are, tell me about when you were a kid, like what were you doing outside of class when you were younger? Tell me about your parents, like what did they do or the people who raised you? And how have they influenced your leadership style today? Absolutely. And I just learned over time, it's like, if you get honest answers from people to those three questions, you are going to understand where that drive comes from. And the sad fact, I mean, I have to say a, a, to me, surprising percentage of the people that I've interviewed over the years just, you know, faced really tough adversity when they were younger. Absolutely. Um, you know, grew up in, in tough circumstances, whether it's economically or, you know, alcoholic parents, you know, an abusive father just those moments early on that really sort of, you know, the crucible moments for them. And, and whereas I think a lot of people in those moments get knocked down by life and they have trouble getting up. Mm-hmm. These people said, no, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to control my own destiny. 
And I think in many ways, for better or worse, that, you know, that fuels them, that becomes part of their drive to want to feel probably a little more, I mean, not to psychoanalyze them too much, but probably not to feel a little more control. And again, I I don't want to play armchair analyst, but some, a lot of the CEOs have been quite open about the fact I interviewed two men back to back and it was bizarre. They told me the exact same story when they were growing up, middle-class lifestyle, father worked, mother stayed at home. I think one of them was eight, the other was 10. Their fathers died of heart attacks, no life insurance. Wow. So all of a sudden the family had to scramble Mm -hmm. to put food on the table. And they both said exactly the same thing. They said, I never want to put my own family through that. So you wonder, it's like, this is where the fuel comes from. And it's not just adversity. I mean, I think some people are born with like, almost like volcanic energy (laughs) inside them. And it doesn't matter what they're going to do. You've met those people, right? They're just like on fire all the time. And then other people, I think they hit the parent lottery and just had great, interesting pairs Mm -hmm. of parents, like, you know, engineering father, artist, mother, entrepreneur, father, you know, somebody like a psychiatrist, like all these pairs that sort of creative analytical sides. Absolutely. Wow. So speaking of that, right, I heard a a lot of common threads and themes to the conversations that you've had. And and actually, you just outlined two different people. Talk a little bit about maybe what surprised you most in your conversations or or maybe three key insights that you can share. You've shared some already. Or maybe what was some, you know, in their mind, maybe unmistakable signs of true leadership, right? And and the interviews that you had, tease out whatever you want to share. Sure. I, I think the biggest surprise for me. So um, I, I think I mentioned one of the, the questions that I asked every single CEO was like, how do you hire? Mm. Like, what, you know, what are the qualities you're looking for? What are the questions you ask? And that was probably the biggest surprise for me hearing their answers. There was some really, you know, unpredictable off the wall kind of job interview questions <laughs> I'd never heard before. And I came to appreciate that you know, when you think about it, it makes sense because anybody who, you know, gets to a CEO for a job interview has probably been scripted and trained about the right answers. Absolutely. You know, my biggest weakness is I care too much and all those other <laughs> things. And, you know, out of necessity, CEOs have to create questions to get people off their talking points. So they develop what I call bank shot questions, right? Like, how do you get around somebody's you know, the facade they present to find out what they're really like in this artificial environment known as the job interview. Mm-hmm. And just the level of kind of creativity and, and insight there, I, I found fascinating. And yeah, there's just a, a lot of great career advice I heard. You know, the, this theme, we touched on it before, but there's this skill that leaders need, and I think is in rare supply around simplifying complexity. Yes. The very best leaders can take all the complexity and the dynamics of the industry and the world and technology trends and all those things and come up with a strategy that where they can stand up in front of, you know, a thousand, 40,000 people, all their employees and all staff meeting and just say, you know, present a very simple model of like, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to win. And that is it's such an important skill. It's a rare skill. I think a lot of leaders think they are better at it than they actually are. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what is crystal clear and simple in their own head is not to others. And you do see a lot of companies where they, they put up the slide around kind of their simple plan. And, you know, it's like six bullet points. And then there's a, 
a pyramid with different colored tiers and corkscrew arrows. And it's sort of very clever and makes sense in the moment, but nobody can remember it. Right. And Absolutely. that's why I, I think this skill, you know, to me, it, it really comes down to the hallway test, right? Like if you just stop employees randomly in the hallway and said, what's our strategy? Would you hear the same thing from different people? And to me, one of the best examples of that, I mean, Bob Iger at Disney, from the day he started his job at CEO, as CEO there, he ran on this platform to get the job and then basically repeated it nonstop. It's like the three things, like great content, technology and all its, you know, forms and platforms and global expansion. Yes. And, you know, you could say, well, isn't that obvious? But it has been the spine that has driven the company's strategy. He's been true to it. And people can say to themselves, like, of those three things, what am I working on? What should I be working on? And to me, that's the the spirit or the sweet spot, rather. When you get that right, it can seem very obvious. Mm -hmm. However, you know, it is crisp, it's clear, and people get it. And again, I, I don't know about you, but I find that to be a pretty rare skill in business. Absolutely right. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that out because, you know, you taught us, right? And I think you've written an article on what, you know, are called the X factors for that separate great leaders from good leaders. And, and the first one is around simplifying complexity. And I've talked to my teams about that quite often and my leadership team that I'm a part of, because you, as a leader, you have to be able to translate to your point. You have to be able to simplify it in bite-sized chunks that the employee base and your leadership community can take that message and run with it. And keeping it simple is the key. And that's often very hard, which is really what you just said. And I appreciate the example of, of Bob Iger. I also took a note and I think you interviewed a CEO. I can't I can't articulate his name or his or her name right now, but I remember one of them talking about the importance of providing the compass, right? Providing the direction yeah. and then allowing the team to come in and kind of create the map. But you have yeah. to be able to, to establish very quickly to the team, here's where we're going. Here are the two or three things we're focused on and then let the team figure out how we're going to get there. It is the high art of leadership. It, it really is. And, and when you get it right, it just aligns everybody. They feel some autonomy, as you say, that they can create the map, but everybody understands what the compass is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you've kind of touched on this a little bit already in terms of what CEOs are looking for from their leaders, some from a skills perspective, experiences and, and traits. You know, has anything shifted or changed given that we're kind of in a global crisis that you think is important to call out to the forefront in terms of what leaders should be focusing on right now? I think the crisis has really you know, put into sharp relief the importance of embracing ambiguity and resilience, mm -hmm. right? Which are, are qualities that people have been talking about for a long time. But we always have to step back and remind ourselves that it's been 12 years since we've had a, a global crisis, right? It's been a 12-year bull market since the financial meltdown of 2008. So you have to think there's a lot of managers and leaders who grew up only in good times. Right. And while they've been hearing about the importance of embracing ambiguity and resilience, now that is being tested. So true. Because, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it over your career too, but in those moments of crisis, there are some people who really find their leadership voice and step up and, you know, and, 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 and embrace the moment. And there's other people who kind of get overwhelmed by it and lose their voice and, and sort of step back. 
and you can never quite predict who's going to be in which camp. And there's a lot of surprises along the way. But there's just so much ambiguity right now. I mean, this crisis is the very definition of uncertainty. And so just finding some level of comfort within that ambiguity, not that it's going to be easy or anybody's perfect at it, but just the sense of like, I can operate in this environment where we are trying to write the playbook as opposed to following a playbook. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, speaking of that, right, I mean, and I know through this coronavirus, COVID-19, a global pandemic, you've actually been talking to quite a few leaders about how they're leading their teams and their companies through this the challenging environment that we're facing. You know, what do you think that the new normal might look like? And what changes do you see as being inevitable once the outbreak is over? And how do we prepare for those changes? Any thoughts around that? Yeah, I'm, I'm hope I'll say something that's not department of the obvious, Lakeisha, but I, I think, you know, remote working is just, you know, it's here to stay, right? And, uh, you know, some people are going to be going back to the office, but I just think the, the way work is going to get done is just going to be so much more remote working. What are the impacts long-term on business travel? But to me, it's, you know, in terms of like leadership skills and abilities and qualities and one of the things that intrigues me, I, I, you know, let me back up. There's, there's, unfortunately, there's still a lot of bad leaders out there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's right. a lot of bad bosses in the world. And one flavor of bad boss is like, I want to have quality FaceTime with you. Like, I want you in the office so that I know you're here, right? And I think remote working is actually going to put more, and it's good pressure, but more pressure on leaders to become much crisper about what the outcomes are. You know, what needs to be done? What are the three or four priorities? What are the timeline? What are the metrics for, you know, measuring performance and progress so that people can work remotely? So in many ways, I see this crisis is leaders are going to have to raise their game because of it. And I think that's great because I still think there's too many bad bosses in the world. And so I'm, I'm hoping because of this, that again, you know, crisper thinking around priorities and outcomes so that people can, can work remotely. And because how do you measure performance, Mm -hmm. right? Like how do you measure performance in 2020? Like every company right now is scrambling to reset the bars to figure out, well, how are we going to measure whether people are doing a good job this year or not, which might affect their bone? Absolutely. These are huge questions. And And so I think there's going to be a greater premium on that. I think this is a moment where leaders are appreciating that there simply has to be more humanity. Yes. And it's not so much, I have my leadership style and there's a bit of impersonality to it. It's like, you know, the thing that struck me is that the simple question of how are you Mm -hmm. has become in this crisis, it's no longer an empty calorie question, right? When people ask that, like you- They mean it. mean it. They mean it. And as a leader, you need to know because you can't pick up the body language in the hallway or in a meeting. It's like, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's important information. It's, it's almost by definition requiring leaders to become better listeners. And with all their senses, it's not like reading body language on a you know, Brady Bunch tile on the screen is an important new skill. You're so right. So, you know... I, 
maybe it's just I'm an optimist, but I, I, I like to think about the good that will come out of this in terms of demanding that leaders raise their game. I think there's some questions on the table we need to worry about. Like I, you know, here's a big picture question. What is the impact long-term of remote working on the diversity and inclusion? Yes. I mean, I could see, you know, I could see negatives. I may like the optimist in me can make an argument for some positives, but I don't know where it nets out. I'm, I don't know if you have any opinions off the top of your head, but I'd love to hear. I'm hoping to your point, I'm a glass half full person as well. And I'm remaining optimistic that the gas pedal is still going to be pushed forward, meaning that we're going to, the momentum that we won't lose it. But I think there has to be some intentionality to your point around that, that we don't lose the energy. We don't lose the focus on diversity and inclusion simply because we're no longer in the office. It's still just as important because we still have a global economy, we have a global workforce. So that's an excellent question you raised. Yeah, and and I would put in, I mean, I think the worries are that people will resort to some of the tribal behaviors, Mm -hmm. right? You know, remote working to sort of talk to the people who are in your so-called Mm in-group. I I think the, you know, one potential benefit is that it... (laughs) Remote working and, you know, Zoom conference calls, they're the ultimate leveling of the playing field, right? Absolutely. You know, everybody is the same. So all the status markers that play out in, you know, a physical workspace at the office, all those are gone, right? You know, just think about all the dynamics that are play, like who sits where around the conference room table in a meeting and and where are people's offices and how close are you to the boss and <laughs> you know who talks to who in the in the coffee break room all that stuff goes away i love it and everybody's you know some people have you know interesting backgrounds behind them so you know again i'm just intrigued what happens when all the status markers go away cuz everybody's kind of in the same boat now and again i i have to think that's that's good at some level, even if it's just a, a small contribution. Yeah, I love that perspective. It's, it's kind of a, a new leveling of the playing field, so to speak. So just really quickly, maybe what's some of the best career advice that you've ever received? You talked a little bit about it earlier to some degree, and, and maybe tie that to maybe some of the leadership lessons that, that come to mind for you right now. I think two things come to mind. You know, partly it, it, it may go back to my sort of Canadian upbringing. I mean, generalizations about people from different countries always dangerous. But, you know, I think one of the characteristics of Canadians is like they're not big talkers mm-hmm. and braggers. And, you know, between that and I saw this from my father, too, just this idea of like, let your work speak for itself. Your work should be so good mm. that it should speak for itself. And, you know, if you have that approach, then not only does that buy you job security, but you shouldn't have to ask for promotions, right? Like if you really focus on the work and, and make sure that it is just so good <laughs> that people notice it. Yes. And you're you're going to get noticed and people are going to keep giving you more responsibilities. So to me that's like one important piece of advice. I think the other thing too is I've appreciated this more as I've gotten older and I think I you know everything is much clearer in hindsight, right? Right. <laughs> I'm always struck when when people yeah, you know young people have these very elaborate career plans set out, right? Like by this age, I want to have this title and be making this much money. And, you know, they've got kind of the next three career moves planned out. 
And yes. what I always try and tell them is that your career path is going to be defined as much or more by who you know and who you meet than by the work you do. Wow. And, you know, I think some people get really uncomfortable with the idea of networking. Like it feels kind of icky and transactional and that's not how I roll. And, you know, to which I say, that's not the point. Like building your network of real relationships at work and getting to know people and taking an interest in other people and asking people to have coffee, to have lunch and, and just ask them questions. You don't want anything from them, but it's like, tell me your story. What have you learned in your job? You know, those people, if, if you build that network, you know, I'd certainly happen for me. I look back on my career. I'm in my late fifties now, you know, a lot of the key pivots were because I knew this person who knew that person who recommended me for something. There. Absolutely. So, so that's what I would say. It's like, let your work speak for itself, but make sure you have, you know, just to like build authentic relationships with people. So that you have a, a network, not just, you know, LinkedIn followers. Love that. So powerful. And both the things that you articulate have truly shown up in my life as well, right? You know, control know, what I'm you can sure. control, deliver 100% and, and beyond, and you will be recognized. It doesn't matter where you sit in the organization. I've always said that if you deliver above and beyond, you will be noticed and the opportunities will come your way. And the power of relationships, right? Again, that goes back to that roar, been super critical in my success and my career. I know you've written several books to help leaders navigate corporate America, become more inspirational leaders, leading from the heart. Can you tell us a little bit more about your books and what books we should be reading right now? Yours, of course. Um, <laughs> sure. Well, I'll talk about the next book that I'm working on, which is called The CEO Test. And the subtitle is Mastering the Challenges That Make or Break All Leaders. And it's going to be published next spring by Harvard Business Review Press. I'm working on it with my co-author on this project is Kevin Scherer, is the former CEO of Amgen and has mentored a lot of CEOs and taught leadership at uh, Harvard for six years after he stepped down. The real focus of the book is this idea that I mentioned of like, what are the challenges that make or break all leaders? And it's called the CEO test because our belief is that the challenges that CEOs face are the same that all leaders face. It's just there's greater intensity and complexity to them. Absolutely. But if we can really focus in on those challenges, like simplifying complexity, complexity, like building effective teams, listening, learn from CEOs, draw the lessons that can help everybody. That's the focus of the book, and we're pretty excited about it. In terms of books right now, I mean, there, there's so many leadership books that I'm sure your listeners know about. I, you know, I keep coming back to like this is a moment of resilience, and and one of my sort of favorite genres is like the adventure books. You know, mm. it's like the explorers. You know, Ernest Shackleton, Antarctica, into the yes. heart of the sea. To me, those are, you know, that's what I think about this moment. Like we're this is a real challenge. We're uncertain, but we are going to get through this. And it's just kind of drawing on those inner resources that we all have to get through those kind of stare at the ceiling moments. Love it. Wow. Very powerful. Thanks for those recommendations. I'm actually going to pick up those as well. I mean, to your point, this is uncharted territory, right? How do you navigate this? So I love the adventure theme there. So lightning round, we're going to wrap up. I don't want to, but I know I have to. So <laughs> a couple of quick questions. So what are you watching on Netflix? And uh, maybe 
any fun things that uh, have captured your attention if, if you ever have downtime? <laughs> yeah, you know, need, need some downtime at night. Um, right now we're binging on Fauda on Netflix. We've been watching Homeland on Showtime. They're both kind of dark, so trying to, you know, make it a bit lighter. Killing Eve was a great series. Yes, uh, I love that. Really enjoyed that. I, I do find, I don't know about you, Lakeisha, with this, you know, all this uncertainty in the world and working on, I am having such weird dreams at night. Yes. So I, I realized that I need to put a buffer of like lighter stuff before I go to bed after the dark series. Right. Otherwise I'll just have really dark dreams all night. Yes, we got it. I was just watching, um, I think Dave Chappelle got the Mark Twain Award. That was fun. So I totally agree with you. <laughs> what are three words that describe you? Hmm. All right, twist my arm. I mentioned this before. I'd say curious. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I think reliable is an important word for me because I, I think if you're going to be on a team and working with others to accomplish something, you, they have to know you're reliable, that you're going to play your position and anticipate you know, their needs, the team's needs. And I think that's an important word for me. And I guess I would put in relentless you know, in a positive way just because if I want to accomplish something, I'm pretty determined to make it happen. And, uh, you know, like with corner office, I, when I started, I had no idea where it was going to lead or how long I was going to do it, but I decided that I was going to make this a weekly series and I never missed a week for 525 weeks. So there's that kind of persistence and perseverance that, you know, I, I like to think that I embody and there's kind of a, Enough track record of examples. Absolutely. It's not just empty promises that I'm saying. Always love that. Love that. So uh, what do you do to stay motivated and inspired? There's nothing special there, Lakeisha. I mean, I, you know, I, I read a lot. I surf a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in everything so I can get inspiration from a lot of different places. I mean, I think for all of us, the challenge right now is you know, I don't know about you, but you can get up and spend an entire day with Zoom meetings. Exactly. Just, just <laughs> having that discipline to, to go out for a run with a mask yes. on and all that. So to me, uh, it's such an important focus. And I don't do it every day, but I try and do it most days. Yeah, I think we're almost all Zoomed out right now, but we'll, exactly. we'll persist. <laughs> Zoom fatigue is a real thing. Yes. And so talking about favorite ways to spend your downtime, sounds like you like to run. Are you a runner? What are some things uh, that you like to do in your downtime? Yeah, it's more jogging than running. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 will, I, I, I am not fast. Um, you know, not beyond that, I mean, I, you know, what? My wife and I, I've known her since I was 19 and, uh, and we're pretty good friends. Awesome. And so we like to hang out and cook and, uh, and watch movies. And we're both introverts. So this is, uh, you know, as hard as <laughs> this is, we're, we're pretty comfortable in, with each other's company and being kind of shut in. So Yeah, I know you have two amazing daughters, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're both nurses. Thank you. Yeah. Um, in uh, Nashville and New Orleans. And so they're they're kind of on the front lines. Yeah. That's a, an ambient worry, but so far they're okay. Well, that's good to hear. We'll definitely keep them in our prayers. And so uh, thank you for that. What advice would you give your younger self today? I'd go back to what I touched on earlier. It's just, you know, I appreciate this now. I didn't appreciate it as much back then, but just that importance of building relationships. Yes. And, okay. and when I think of, it has certainly helped me. And I think the times in over my career where, challenging situations didn't break as well as they could have 
And if I'm being honest with myself and ask myself, how do I own that? What could I have done better? I think part of the, the forensics are, you know, if I had invested more time to build relationships with those people, those challenging moments would have been less transactional. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of my memo to self if I had a redo. I love it. Powerful, authentic relationships and taking the time to invest in those are critical. Perfect. Exactly. Well, I hate to end this. It's been so good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I always enjoy talking with you. We keep Absolutely. And I want to make sure that my listeners know that they can continue to follow you on social media channels. Again, you have some of the best interviews, the best articles on leadership, developing the right communication skills, how to develop your X factor. So I just want to say, please, please follow Adam on LinkedIn. Um, Adam Bryan is on LinkedIn. You have your own personal website, adambryanbooks.com. We can also find your books on Amazon. Is there any other place that we should be looking to stay connected with you? I think LinkedIn is the, is the main thing. Um, thank you. I've, I'm doing a, a number of interview series there all around leadership with board directors, CEOs, chief human resource officers. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll certainly continue to stay in touch and wishing you the best during this right. time for you and your family and take care. And we'll talk to you soon. You too. Thanks. Lakeisha. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time, 